Hi guys, before we get into today's episode, I want to chat about our sponsor, Easy Jack. Easy Jack is a three-in-one product that will make changing tires a dream and have you back on the road within minutes. Most of you know that I'm currently traveling full-time and the other day I actually clocked 50,000 kilometers for the past 12 months. Now, I've changed plenty of tires in my time, especially in the past 12 months, but using those poxy little jacks that come with your motor car, that drives me nuts. It was only back in June that I had my most recent flat tire while working on Anna Creek Station, and the jack that came with my four-wheel drive just quit on me. Then I had to lug over a massive trolley jack from the workshop, and it was a freezing cold morning, and it took like 40 minutes to change my tire by the time I'd like mucked around with my jack and then the trolley jack, and it was just not the start to a Monday morning that I wanted. So I bought an easy jack. And it's actually the first time I've ever bought something I've seen advertised on TV. And oh my gosh, guys, it is such a game changer. So the Easy Jack has a jack, an air compressor, and a rattle gun. The air compressor plugs into your 12-volt outlet, or it can hook up to your battery. So you can pump up your tire if you have a small leak and drive to the closest tire repair shop. Or if you're like me and you're out whoop whoop, you can just slowly make your way back to the nearest homestead. The jack will lift your vehicle off the ground with the simple press of a button, which means you don't have to look like you're trying to pump water out of a well (laughs) from the olden days uh, to get your car to lift up. And it lifts up to three tons. So that lifts up a 200 series Land Cruiser. Uh, Not that I can afford one of those, but it's nice to know that if I ever can upgrade my motor car, I'll still be able to use my easy jack. And the rattle gun will loosen the tightest of wheel nuts with no effort at all. Because we all know how fun it is to try and change your tire after you've been, you know, to the tire shop and they've used the rattle gun and you just cannot get your wheel nuts loose. So this means I actually no longer have to carry a piece of pipe in my car to, you know, to put over your wheel brace, to jump up and down on, to loosen those wheel nuts, and then to use to tighten the wheel nuts. And uh, now I also no longer have to be paranoid that I haven't tightened them properly as I drive off. The Easy Jack is super easy to use, and if I can use it, then I think we all know that anyone can use it. The Easy Jack has been tested, approved, and improved to Australian standards, and you should be careful of imitations. Just like you, the Easy Jack team want to keep your family safe on the road. Head on over to easyjack.com.au and use the code CENTRAL10 for 10% off your Easy Jack today. That's E-Z-I-J-A-K dot com dot A-U and use the code CENTRAL10. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Jim Edwards has been a fixture of the pastoral industry in Western Australia for decades. From growing up on a station near Marble Bar 
to being a mustering pilot and station owner, there's not a lot Jim hasn't seen or done. At one point, he literally swapped his Pilbara cattle station for a farm in Queensland. Talk about a tree change. But as you'll learn in this episode, while you can take the man out of Western Australia, there's something that keeps pulling him back across, even after all these years. To start our chat, I asked Jim to tell me about one of the more memorable encounters he's had with snakes. Yeah, it was way, way back. Must have been about, must have been about 85, I think. A fellow rang me up from down here in Newman to go, to go, um, and do a muster down there. So, um, he wanted a fellow to give a hand as well. So I picked up one of my nephews and he jumped in the aeroplane with us and we went down to, um, to do the job. Usually go the night before. And when we got there, um, they were all sort of ready to go next morning, but they all decided to have a few beers and, uh, they kept going and going and going. And I decided that if they were going to be crook next morning, I'd come back home. So I, um, said to them, well, well, I'm going to bed. If you blokes aren't mustered, I've got to get up in the morning and get going because we've got a mustard home. So, uh, I got up just on daylight and, um, they were all still pretty crook. So I thought, oh, I'll get the young bloke and we'll head back home. And, walked across the lawn to um, put the kettle on before we went and there was two snakes wrapped up on the lawn and there was, well, there was kids around. I wasn't going to let them go. So I um, there's a hose there and it's not really easy killing a snake with a hose. So uh, they kept getting out of the way. And anyway, they finished up crawling down a hole. So I grabbed one by the tail and ripped it out and tried to hit it again. And I don't know to this day how it happened, but... When I looked down, one fang had gone into my um, palm of my hand and I thought, oh, he didn't strike, so it's probably no issue. So I dealt with him and then walked back to the boys and I said, I think a snake's bitten me, but I don't think there's any issues because there was just a drop of blood there and it, and it couldn't have struck because it was just one fang. Anyway, I went ice over red, bang, just fainted then and I knew, knew something that was wrong when it was happening and... Anyway, it was about two hours, I think, before I came to. And um, in the meantime, they, they'd rang the flying doctor and, and uh, the flying doctor couldn't come out because the strip wasn't good enough. So the option was to either jump in their motor car and go into Newman, which was about two-and-a-half-hour drive, and I didn't really feel like at that stage going for two-and-a-half hours with a damn snake bite, so I said, I'm heading for home, which was about an hour and a bit. So we got in the aeroplane and headed for home and um, about halfway along, young lady kept looking at me. So I pretended to have a little faint fit. Anyway, he he, he uh, just got taller and taller in his seat looking at me. I had a bit of a giggle at him and we kept going and um, and landed and I couldn't couldn't get out of the aeroplane. It was just, um, just so stiff. Anyway, I got out and could hardly walk. And anyway, the flying doctor came came into uh, Marble Bar then, the strip at Marble Bar, and picked us up and um, flew me to Headland. And oh, it would have been... Well, I kept asking me what sort of snake it was, and I thought it was a King Brown, but I wasn't totally sure because it was still dark when it was when it was all finished. And uh, But it was a very thin, long-type snake, and uh, they didn't know what sort of antivenine to give me, so... And they didn't really want to give us the one that 
did everything because apparently it makes you crook as well. Anyway, they finished up giving me um, three lots of it, 72,000 units, before I came good, and I was there all night in the um, in the hospital. Um, and finally, about daybreak, I started coming good, and um, I think I was pretty lucky. The old doc says, well, don't ever get bitten by another one. But I think to this day I'm sort of... I uh, think the snake was one of those Western taipans because, you know, I don't think the poison from uh, just one fang would have done would have done much to us, but um, it certainly was potent bit of gear because of one little fang and one little drop of blood and the um, results were fairly dramatic. It took me about three months to get over the antivenine and the snake bite. It was wobbling around and finally what? came good. So what kind of things happened to you? So you say it took three months to get over that. What kind of things are happening in those three months? Oh, just hard to walk and, and just very stiff and and uh, sort of muscular things, you know, that were very hard, very yeah. hard to get around. And that's incredible that you were bitten and then you had that reaction. You said it took about two hours until you came to. And so you're obviously out or kind of in and out for two hours, but then you were able to remain I guess conscious enough, long enough to get in your plane and fly at home, which is yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I had no recollection after. It was only about ten minutes after the, probably not even that, after the snake had um, had had so-called bitten me, that I had the reaction, and then I had no recollection until I woke up, which was two hours later, and um, and and then sort of had to make the decision then what I was going to do, and I certainly wasn't going to go. Two and a half, three hours, and they're bouncing over rough roads in, in the old motor car to Newman. So, yeah, that um, was that <laughs> your your nephew? Did he have any idea what to do in the plane if you had had something that happened while you were flying? <laughs> no, I don't think he did. But so he, he was real worried. He wasn't going to. He reckons he wasn't going to stay there. So I thought, oh, I've heard that you can live for twenty four hours after a snake bite. So let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's test that theory. I guess. Um, wow, that's a very close call and a very. Lucky call. I, I heard that's not your only uh, encounter that you've had with snakes, so you seem to run into them at least once more since then. Yeah, I've had one in my swag at Limestone that crawled through my swag. And, um, uh, that was about 11 o'clock at night. I woke up and I could felt this thing alongside me and I stayed dead still and went down around the swag, came back again. And by the time the snake came out the other side, the old heart was going and and I came out of that swag at 100 mile an hour and the old snake skidded down the veranda. It took, took a fair while to get him uh, too because he crawled into the house and uh, went under the carpet. And uh, about two hours later we got him out, of the, out from under the carpet. So. Oh, my goodness. How long do you think it took? Since, like, were you asleep and then you woke up and realised he was in there? Or did yeah, you... I was asleep and then woke up and he was in there, yeah. How long do you think it was in, between that, waking up, and then him can't, like fully exiting a swag. No, it would have been 10 or 15 minutes, but oh. it felt like about three hours. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, there's no way I could have done that. I would have been bitten 40 times trying to get out of the swag. <laughs> that is incredible. Uh, so I suppose on the one hand, with that first story, we've got your, I suppose, uh, a bit of a risk taker in, in the sense of that, um, you know, you went to go and try and get rid of those first two snakes, also because you didn't want anyone else to kind of, come across them but then also you know getting in the plane so that's a bit of a risky move and then 
you've also got a lot of self-control as we've just seen in that second story where you're, you're able to stay in your swag. So very interesting person so far. I'd like to know, I want to go back to your early days now. Let's start off with, you know, being a child and growing up on Mount Edgar Station or, and before that, but what were you like as a child? Were you, were you a bit of a risk taker as a child too? I don't know, really. It was, always had a bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, man was, um, was always doing things and, and it was a great life, that's for sure. We were always on horses from the time we were five year old and uh, probably earlier than that, actually, in the mustering camps from that, that period as well. And certainly learned all the basics of stock handling very young. So. How did your family come to be at Mount Edgar Station and whereabouts is that? Mount Edgar is um, 30k, 30 mile east of Marble Bar. And um, when we were in Victoria, the old man wanted to get back to uh, stations and Mentina came up, place next door to Edgar, and uh, we travelled across the Nullarbor up through Megathara and uh, and he took the station over in 1959, I think it was, and we spent a year out on the on the old old, old homestead. It was a bit of an old shack. And then Edgar came up for sale and, and he bought that and we moved to Edgar and uh, then gradually took the sheep out of the country and changed, changed it over to cattle, the two places. So you'd been in Victoria initially. How does someone, I suppose your father, find a, a pastoral property for sale in the very like northwest of Western Australia, like in the Pilbara, when you're living in Victoria in the 50s and it's not like you can kind of jump on Facebook or realestate.com.au or Beef Central and see what's coming up and down for sale? Yeah, well, I'm not sure how it all happened then, but um, the old man had been around a bit. He was born in, uh, in Fremantle in... Uh, in WA and and virtually rode right the way across Australia and joined joined the war in um, in Queensland and um, managed places in the Gulf and in the Territory. We, we kids as kids we were real small kids. We grew up in Queensland and the Territory and then moved down to Victoria for three or four years and uh, it was too cold down there, so he <laughs> he decided he and somehow or other he found Mentina was for sale and he he'd worked there as a kid so. Uh, why we went. Wow. I, I was also just wondering that how you go from, cause I knew from talking to your daughter Sally that, uh, your father, her grandfather had spent a fair bit of time up north. And then just then when you said something about leaving from Victoria to go to Menthina and Mount Edgar, I was like, I didn't know about Victoria. And yeah, that's such a different, it's a very <laughs> different place down there. Um, Marble Bar is known as one of all the hottest places in the country. So, or one of, I'm sure, I think it and Udna Data kind of fight out for that title every couple of years. Uh, so yeah, definitely going from one extreme to the other. For people listening who have never been to Marble Bar, uh, first of all, put it on your bucket list, but could you kind of describe the country and kind of paint us a picture of what it's like? Because it is, well, personally my favourite type of country. But yeah, I suppose... You spent a lifetime there, so if you could describe it to us. Oh, yeah, it's um, Spinifex country and there's ranges of hills through it with sort of undulating uh, undulating creeks and, um, and and they turn into, into big rivers and it's pieces of very rough country and um, uh, mixed up with, with granite and very stunted desert-type trees uh, across the um, ridges and that and uh, and river gums and, and white River gum trees through through all the creeks. It is um the most spectacular. I don't know. I might be biased, but in saying that, I feel like I can also say this because I've travelled a fair bit around the country to different pastoral areas. But it is like the most spectacular country, and the 
I mean, actually, I don't know. Do you call it Pindan, like the red dirt in that part of the country? Do you refer to it as Pindan or you just call it something else? No, the Pindan is, um, is, is the, all the sandy country across the coast, really, along the coastal green. Yeah, I always wonder when somebody yeah. says, you know, like the Pindan, and I'm just like, is that just your word for red dirt or is it, yeah, okay, a more specific yeah. area. But the red dirt out there and then like you're saying the ranges, uh, especially at sunrise or sunset, you know, when that sun just kind of hits it. I get to, I've, I've got every time I drive down the, the Boreline Road, kind of, um, just before Mucken, um, and there's that bit you go through with like the, you're just staring at me. <laughs> with the hills there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The show, the show, yeah, hills. <laughs> yeah, for the people obviously listening, they can't see me just trying to like draw these things with my hands. So but I've gotten to, whenever I get to drive down there, kind of like I try and time it for sunrise and just when the light hits it, yeah, it really is the most spectacular country. So it is, as we said, though, one of the hottest parts of the country. It's very unforgiving. Yeah. Tell me a bit about, I suppose, when your family moved there and what it was like for you growing up and, and what life would have been like on an average day for you. Well, it was just like any typical kids, I guess. We just went wherever the, the old man went, whether it be on a horse or in the back of the bus doing the windmill runs. And, and when mum could catch us to go, go to this distance education, well, we'd, we'd be caught in the schoolhouse then. But other than that, we were out and about, you know. And you said when you first got there, you had sheep and then you transitioned into cattle. So I actually haven't spoken to anyone yet on this podcast that um, has been up north <laughs> when sheep were, that, that, when they were still running sheep. So how is running sheep on a station in Marble Bar different to running cattle on a station? Well, in, the, in those days, the early days there, the, the, the average rain that we'd had over the first six or seven years was was very low. It was less than four inches, and it was supposed to be eleven inches. Uh, but it's like anything. There's a cycle, and and the cycle over there seems to be about seven or eight years of, of bad, and and eight or nine years of good. So uh, the bad years less than four inches, and the good years ten inches plus. So so they've been a huge since the um, crash of the wool industry in '55. I think it was. When it went from pound to pound, uh, down, all the droughts started right throughout the Pilbara and the, and the sheep just got less and less and less and less to eat. And there wasn't very many there when we got there. There was cattle on Manthina and, and father decided that, that the transition should start there. So we virtually moved cattle from Manthina to Edgar and set the joint up for cattle. So what, what are the differences? So say if, when you, been there and there were some sheep if you say you'd continue to run sheep or you'd been there 10 years earlier before the crash of the wool industry how does a sheep operation look compared to a cattle operation i, I suppose in terms of uh your activities and then your infrastructure the way you look after the country it was a lot more fenced up with sheep obviously dingoes were a real problem in those days and they're a lot, lot less problem with, with cattle of course and and you can sort of open, open range the cattle a lot a lot simply use the country better than uh, than you can with the sheep, and I mean the keeping fences up with sheep in that creek country was huge because you're, you're forever fixing up creek crossings and God knows what else. And I guess the big transition to cattle was was the sheep watering points. The troughs were very small, and and it was uh, a bit of a job trying to set it up so that the troughs were able to be used for cows. And and pulling the sheep fences up was another issue because um, she was a big tangle. Of, once cattle start walking through uh, fences that I haven't got any barbed wire, there's you know all sorts of problems happen with 
wire getting tangled around them and wire in the, you know, where you don't expect it and you can ride into it or get your motor car caught in it and, you know, all sorts of things like that. But it all worked out at the end. So we're talking back in the 1960s. What was your homestead like? It was a big old corrugated iron homestead, um, big veranda all around it. Um, uh, we had kerosene fridges and 32-volt power, which, you know, there wasn't any appliances to be run off the 32-volt power, but w- it was for lights and, um, and um, yeah, well, just for lights, really. Um, and we used to run that of an evening and uh, oh, the washing machine, of course, the old ringer washing machine was run by 32-volt. And we had donkey boilers for hot water system, uh, just a 44 with pipes coming out of it and into the shower and, and we'd light that up every day for hot water. And um, Did you have to light it up during summer? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, only winter. Uh, I'm just imagining the water probably would have been plenty hot in summer. And I, I'm going to ask a question. I've been debating whether or not I should ask this. I wanted to ask it a couple of episodes ago when I was talking to somebody else um, when they were telling you about station life in the 70s, and I just don't want to look like a complete idiot. But if I'm wondering, then I'm sure somebody else listening is wondering, so I'm happy to take one for the team and look like a goose. Kerosene fridge. I don't. I know kerosene is like, you know, have your little kerosene lamp. It's, you know, like it's a fuel that you set on fire, isn't it? How, how does that – how do you get a cold fridge from kerosene? Well, there's a little uh, kerosene tank underneath the fridge, and they had the had the compressor and all that sort of thing. Um, it was fairly fairly basic looking old compressor on it, but it was very efficient. And there was a wick in the in the tank of the kerosene, and that you had to get that wick set right so that um, the fridge didn't smoke and all that sort of thing. And um, and away it went and turned turned hot into coal. Okay, so it's. I just, I'm just, I guess it, that's the bit I'm not sure about is how they turn the hot into cold, but there's obviously something going on just there. The transfer, transfer of gas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, see, um, but <laughs> physics, chemistry, not really my strong suit. I think it was in 1942, um, there was a big flood. This was at Manthana and, and the fridge that was at the old homestead, which was 30 mile up the river, got washed away and they built a new homestead. Uh, where, where, where it was then. And, um, when we got there, we had one fridge, I think one kerosene fridge. Anyway, we, us kids went down the, down to the river and we were having a swim in the river and we came back and there's this old fridge lying on the flat, old Electrolux kerosene fridge. It didn't have the, didn't have the kerosene tank there. Anyway, that old man comes down and rips her out of the creek, takes her up, cleans it up, had a kerosene tank there, put it in. I think we used that fridge. From 1959, it went to Edgar with us right through to the late 60s, late 70s it was, before we left Edgar, and that fridge was gone all that time. So that's how tough they were. Wow. <laughs> I just always wonder about, like, who invented it, though, and there you go. I have been wondering if I should ask that and how many people are listening and going to be like, how do you not know what that is? But I didn't, so hopefully someone else didn't either. You're welcome. So we're talking back in fairly, I don't want to use the word primitive because that makes me think of like a caveman, but I suppose relatively primitive conditions in terms of no electricity or you just see 32 volt, um, no air conditioning, no, you know, like just there weren't the luxuries, I suppose, back then. 
things are a bit more uh, old school. And so that also would go with how you are work, getting around the station in terms of like what kind of motor cars did you have and, and you, was it all mustering on horseback? Yeah, it was all mustering on horseback and the, the um, motor cars we used were old Land Rovers, old Series 1 Land Rovers. Uh, they were great, great old machines. And um, But in terms of luxury, I think the biggest luxury was a um, Spinifex house with the water running through the spinnerbacks and you could, you could get in there of a real hot day and it was, um, was almost like air conditioning. It's funny because those are still a thing now. I, I know. So Yari is kind of next door and then Muckin's next door to Yari. And I was out at Muckin a couple of years ago visiting your nephew Lance and we're sitting outside and you just said this is like 2018, 2019. So not. Not that long ago, and they've got that they had the drippers going through the spin effects, and it yeah, was so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's funny that it's something. It's really that- good in in dry heat. It's not so not so efficient when it's humid, but it's still still very yeah very good to get into. Imagine what you'd say when your aircon bills. So <laughs> sometimes technology isn't always the best thing, and so it was all horseback mustering. That was in you know you guys came there in the late fifties and stayed there. Did you say? Through the seventies, yeah, and but then you've been in the pasture industry pretty much. You're still involved to this day, so you have seen a big change. Like there's been a big amount of changes in a very short span of time in terms of going from horses to more mechanized options such as motorbikes, buggies, uh, quad bikes, and then also aircraft. So can you talk me through a bit about the transition over the years that you guys went through moving? If you if you did move away, because some people haven't moved away from horses, so. Just how that all started to come about, I suppose. Yeah, well, we never ever really moved away from horses. It, it was it was just um, probably using less of them, and um, and then using starting to use vehicles for for the long runs, and it saved saved the um, it saved the um, the old horse a lot of a lot of heartburn, and and we just used used them mainly for, for driving the mob along, which we still do, and using the bikes and the and the vehicles. To do the do the run wherever the aeroplane wanted to take you. So, so for people, for anybody listening who's never been mustering before or does and may, may not quite understand that. So when you say using the horses to kind of, I suppose, keep the main mob together and kind of travelling along, and what do you mean by the run? Well, in the in the old days, we, we always worked on tracks, and uh, uh, we'd always get a mob get a mob together, and then. They'd, we'd make a bit of a plan about where where to take take the coach and mob and the way they'd go, and then they'd pull up somewhere, and then we'd do a run out with the vehicles and um, and pick up whatever was in that area, then bring them back to that spot, and then and then move on onto the next um, spot where the coach and mob would pull up, and and um, then do another run out the area looking for tracks, fresh tracks and that sort of thing. Okay. So if we're, for, if we're thinking about it, kind of looking at it from a bird's eye view, you've kind of got one mob of cattle, like one main one, but there's, they're kind of, I guess, the rest of everything, that's the whole reason I suppose you're going out to muster is they're all spread out all over the place, all scattered. So you've kind of got your, your main little mob that you're making tracks slowly towards the yards or wherever you're heading that day. And then at certain times you're kind of leaving that or somebody's leaving that and kind of going out far and wide to look yes. for extras to bring them back in to gather them and yeah, scouting out either side. Yeah. Okay. And what about aircraft? When did the when did that come into the picture? Well, I think it was the late sixties uh, when we first used the aircraft. A fellow from um, Laurie Bone from down down in the Megas area came up and, and did a run and then um, it was 
I think we'd done about two weeks' work in, in one day and had a yard full of cattle. We sort, sort of decided then that perhaps I should get my licence and um, I think it was about three or four years after that before I did, but we were using aircraft quite often from then on. So, Was this Laurie Bain, was he from a pastoral property in, in Meekathara? Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's one of the local. Famous old pastors from down that area. Okay. I'm just wondering, um, cause we had a young girl on the podcast quite a while ago, Pip Bain and her granddad, I'm pretty sure was, they had country around there and they've kind of been in the Gascoigne for a while. And, yeah. They would. would yeah, have yeah. Yeah. Oh, small world. And so he came out. How did you get the idea? Do you remember to, to even be like, Oh, Laurie can come up and do this, you know? Whose idea was that? Was that your dad's? I'd say so. Like he, like he was mates with most of them blokes, and um, I can't remember exactly how um, how it all came about. But anyway, the um, I think it was sixty seven or sixty eight was the first time he came up, and uh, and um, yeah, he was just mate. Although just mates, I think, and he heard about the airplane he'd been using. Them. Okay, I'm going to ask another potentially really embarrassing question, but. I mean, what's dignity at this point? Um, were two-way radios around back then? Two-way radios were around, um, but they were the old uh, – I can't remember what you call them, the old CB, and they all the, um, all the um, Indonesian – you'd pick up all sorts of yabba from from Indonesia islands, and they were, were a battle to hear, and especially when you got on the aeroplane, they were just about impossible to hear. Wow. Anyone from the ground, but they weren't too bad on the on on the ground vehicle to vehicle. But the the ones that you carried on the horse, they were very cumbersome and it was very awkward. So when them around. so that first day when Laurie's up in the sky, did you just have to have a meeting beforehand and kind of make a plan? Yeah, um, I think we had a radio. Um, it was all fairly like the cattle had never been used to an aeroplane, so you know they all ran fairly well. Um, and him being a good stockman, it, you know, he knew how he knew what they were doing and what they were going to do, and and um, we just made a made a bit of a plan to to um, do this certain run, and and we finished up at the yard with one hell of a mob. So you guys just must have been so excited. Yeah. <laughs> And so you decided to get your license, but not for a few years later. What, you know, these days it can take a few months and it, it's fairly expensive whether you're going for a fixed wing or a helicopter license. Did you have to go far away from home back then? Is it, is it as formal as it was now? Like, did you have all those written exams? Oh, yeah. I, I went to Headland um, and there was a fellow there uh, from South Africa who was a very good pilot. And he, um, I just went and done it like, I think it took me eight weeks or something. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Um, and I stayed there until, until I had finished the private license. I'd done all the exams and, and, um, and all the flying with him at Port Hedland. And, uh, I think it was 72 or 73. I'd have to have a look at my logbooks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that first time getting in the plane and, and going up? Well, I've been in, in planes with, um, with our Laurie and, and, um, uh, Benny Newland and a few others. Uh, so I sort of knew all about it. First holo flight was very, um, was very memorable. Just felt a bit lonely up there when, uh, when, you know, you don't, 
I didn't really um, think much about it until I got up and turned around to do the circuit and then looked around there was no one alongside me, so I thought I'd better, <laughs> better start thinking about how to get this thing down. So, But as it turned out, it was um, it was very smooth. And you, you ended up flying for 30-odd years uh, as a mustering pilot, which is an incredible wealth of experience. I, I've heard people often say, you know, mustering cattle from the sky, it's very important that you've done it on the ground beforehand and that you understand how they work and it's not necessarily that different. But can you explain to me, if that's correct, how it's not really that different to being on the ground or why you need that knowledge? Well, you you know, the introduction of cattle, introducing yourself to cattle is the most important thing. It doesn't matter whether it's in a yard or, or in a small paddock or out on the open range, you, you know, you need to introduce yourself to them and, um, and give them a bit of time to get used to you. You know, when you first meet, meet a mob of cattle, they'll have their head up in the air above their back when you, when they're looking at you and, and you really need then to let them look at you until the head comes down and then start working them. And if the head comes up again, just pull up and it's no different from doing that from the horseback days right through, motor car, motorbike and, um, of course, with the aeroplane, you're handling much more, much more of a big an area, but you still need to, when you see that mob there, don't, don't hit them too hard. Just fly around for a while and get them poking in one direction where you think the coaches might go that day and, and, um, and don't get too excited about doing much with them until, um, until the mob gets up there. So. And I suppose the other thing is you, you for a long time were mustering in a plane, whereas today it's quite common for a lot of people. I mean, it depends on country type, but to use helicopters. And there's a fair bit of difference between a plane and a helicopter in terms of maneuverability and what you can do with them. So how, you know, when you're flying, I suppose I'm just wondering, I've only been up in a plane a few times while mustering and I just feel like you don't have, you know, a, hel- a helicopter you can stop and hover and kind of do all these different movements, but in a plane you kind of have these bigger, like, I don't, I don't know if you call it a turning circle or, and you can't just stop and go back. You've got to come and do a loop-de-loop. So how do you, how did you start working out all that when you're trying to get a mob going somewhere, but then you need to come back? Like, what do you, what do you do? Can you just give me a little one a little 101 on aerial mustering from a plane, as if I was going to do yeah, it? Yeah, well, I mean, um, it's something that, Takes a lot of hours to, to get used to, especially when you're doing turns uh, close to the ground, and that sort of thing. You need to to be able to know exactly where that mob is in the turn, and and it does take a bit of practice. So if you're um, if you're doing a turn, you need to know exactly where, when those cattle are going to come up again, and um, and because you can't see them all the time, of course. You know, you your backs to them for a lot of the time, so you need to know um, have a fair idea what they're going to do, as well as um, as as, as Knowing where you are on the ground with the aeroplane, and, and and I guess the most important thing is setting up your pattern for a start and sticking sticking with that pattern. Don't go getting in front of the mob and turning them back where you do, where you don't want them to go. So you you know you need to have a um, a pattern set up and stick to that pattern um, right throughout the day. Um, so is that, that's the pattern that you're flying. Do you mean? Well, the pattern of the master, like you know. Okay. Um, well, what I used to do early in the because it is is get up and have a look and get an idea just by flying around. Which because most cattle will run one way, they'll they'll all start working one way. It doesn't matter if if um, 
if they haven't met one another during the day, like they've, they, if you start moving, they'll all start moving one way. Well, if, if you set your muster up around that, just go and have a look, go back and get, get the coaching mob going and then set your muster up around that. Oh, yeah, that mob's six mile out that way. We're going to try and get to there um, and then pick up all the cattle in the way in the meantime. So you're sort of setting up a pattern so that as the coaches are going through the through the centre of your muster, the, you're, you're, you're picking up those stragglers on the way and then you end up with the end, the ones at the end of the day, you, you end up with them as well without having to take them too far. When you're watching your cattle as you're flying, is most of that out the window as opposed to like the windscreen? Because that's, that's something I find whenever I go up in one of these little Cessnas is that I cannot see over the dashboard. This is also why I don't like flight well, being in planes, like the little ones, because like no one can see over the dashboard. Like you can just kind of see sky in front of you. And I always wonder like how you're not going to fly into a mountain. I know there's instruments and stuff, but still. Um, so we, when you're looking and working cattle, are you kind of always looking out your window? Well, well all the old aeroplanes that I've flown, that I've flown were all, um, like you'd all see over the front. It's only the, the later day, uh, ones like about 19. I think 74 or something, they, they started bringing the dashes up so that um, that people could learn um, instrument flying with them and, and that sort of spoiled the show for aerial mustering, whereas uh, all those old A model, B model um, Cessnas and, and um, you had a real good vision over the front, so you, you had vision out the front and out the side. So, so that, oh, you know, I have flown a few of those um, later models, which are bloody old models now, of course, but... Um, but you know, I didn't like not being able to see over the dash. Okay. I'm glad you've said that because I did. I went out, I had to a couple of years ago fly over every past release in the Pilbara and Kimberley. This pilot, like we could not, I was in the front seat. You cannot see over the dash. And I'm like, but there's a range. Like, how do you know that? Okay. Maybe we're not going to fly into it directly because we can see sky in front of us, but that you might not clip the bottom of your plane on or something called there's a tower on this little hill that we're going to fly over. How do you know you're not just going to clip that? And he's like, Oh, I've got instruments and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, but I, that's just, no, I want to see where I'm going. Like <laughs> I don't understand why they've done that. I was like, I need a booster seat. I want to be higher up in this plane. Speaking of height though, how, how high do you fly when you're mustering and, and then are you kind of staying up and away or are you coming up and down, like closer and further away from the mob? The average height you're spotting at is around about 150, 200 feet and not, not much over 300 feet. Most of the flying's been under 300 feet and then you're turning, you know, you might go and tickle the mob up a bit while you're down fairly low then and then you, you can do a few turns then to, to keep them moving or whatever and, and then mainly it's around the 150 feet you're flying and spotting and and setting the muster up. So. so once you got that license, did you just fly at home? No, we didn't have an aeroplane for a few years and I went and I'd done my low-flying low endorsement fairly quickly and, and uh, went with uh, David Walker, who was a very good pilot, and he sort of trained us very well with low-flying and, and, and being able to bring uh, it up to a mustering level. And I think I went down to Malina and flew the aeroplane for a season and then... Um, I went up to Anna Plains and flew the aeroplane for a couple of seasons. I finished up going to Mount House and they hired an aeroplane from Alice Springs. I flew that for, for a year and then I finished up and bought an aeroplane in um, Adelaide and flew that back and then from then on we I did our own mustering and, and just kept contracting for stations in the Kimberleys mainly for the first six or seven years, a little bit of pilgrim work. What was it like 
going from the Pilbara to the Kimberley because that's fairly different country, especially up in Mount House. That's up on the Gibb River Road. Yeah, it would be pretty different to your home country. Well, surprisingly enough, the, like Mount House is um, is different vegetation, but but typical um, sort of country, the same sort of country by ranges and um, and undulating creeks and that sort of thing. So it was it was fairly um, fairly similar sort of topography there. And so this is so you're the one flying now. I'm just thinking back to that first day when Laurie Bain came and was flying, and we're talking about how there wasn't really good radios back then. So you'd obviously at least had the experience of being on the ground while someone was in the air and not really knowing how to communicate with them. Now you're the person in the sky, and even though it's only a few years later, were radios better by then, or how did you communicate with the people on the ground? Well, we had the the CB radios, but but the, the, as I said, the the yabba from the from the Indonesia or wherever was horrific. You could never hear anything. You know, it was always guesswork, and and so we never never really perfected that. We got away with it, but it was um, you know, my vehicle, the vehicle to uh, the aeroplane was you'd get away with it, but the handheld ones were you know, that you'd have on the horse or a motorbike were fairly ordinary. And um, and when I went to um, when I went to Mount House, uh, we communicated mainly with 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 notes. So uh, I'd throw little maps out, and they'd uh, follow the maps around, and I'd give orders from from uh, the aeroplane by pointing or um, or throwing these little maps out, or little notes out. So I'm just trying to imagine this little note floating down from the sky. What? Was it just like a piece, like a piece of paper folded up that you throw out, or did it need to be attached to something? I'm just wondering. Like, you could throw something out on your front lawn here, and I would be like running around trying to find it. Let alone flying around in like thick country. You know, like you said, there was different topography, but you know, there's a fair bit of timber up there. And even if you're out in an open place, like, how do you find a piece of paper that's just been dropped from the sky? Well, it was a full. It was it used to carry a full full scale. Piece, piece of paper, and, and, and when you'd write, it was a big writer. Like you had to, because you know, you're bumping around. It wasn't uh, when you're making the little maps up on that. It was uh, you get a bit of detail in there. Not an easy thing to do, but but I just fold it into four and um, hold the note up to the boys, and then they'd get ready for it, and I'd fly over and you go about thirty, forty foot past past them and drop it out, and it'd it'd flutter down to them, and uh, nine times out of ten they'd catch it in the air. So that's it's just wild. Like I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> just can't imagine it. There was a couple of the old indigenous fellows I used to work with there. They, um, I was flying along one day and I brought them out to do a run and, um, and the coaches were probably, I don't know, two or three K away and, and I threw the note out to them to tell them what to do and I see them looking at it. No, couldn't work out what was going on. I fly back over and no, they looked at me. Anyway, luckily Robin, the manager, came along and um, one of the old fellows said to him, what's he say here? They couldn't read. And Robin told him what they said. He said, oh, that's all right. And he turned the note upside down and said, right, they said, what's he say this way? <laughs> and, you know, being uh, the old message stick had two meanings a lot and I think that's what he thought. The note might have two messages. So. Oh, so Indigenous people used to communicate with something that... Yeah, message sticks, so. Yeah, and so it would, one way it would mean something one and then you... One way it would mean something and turn around the other way it would mean something else. So. Yeah, so they're looking at your <laughs> map and they're like, oh, so, bless. So ever after that, I um, 
I always made a little map, threw it out to them, and it made things a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Resource Consulting Services, Australia's leading provider of holistic, regenerative farm business education and advisory services. The Grazing for Profit School has been delivered in every Australian state to more than 5,500 farmers, empowering them to increase profit, lift the health and production of their land, improve relationships in their business and enhance their work-life balance. Learn more at rcsaustralia.com.au. I was working with um, with a mate and he had the choppers and and, and I had my aeroplanes at at Mallina and um, and then I'd do I'd do some flying for him if he couldn't do it with a with a chopper and he had a um, Hughes three hundred which he just had done up and he asked me to go and do a run for him down in the foot um, down near Whitney Gorge so I went down in that and and the oil pressure was really uh, really up. And I rang him up and I said, "Oh, this, this oil pressure is pretty high. What's what? What? What do you think's the issue?" And uh, he said, "The motor's just been done up. It should be okay." Anyway, worried me all day. Finished the job and came back to the station. And he, in the meantime, he'd picked up my 150 from the maintenance in Rome and brought it down. And we swapped over. I went, I went, got in my aeroplane to fly back to home, and he got in, into the. Um, the Hughes 300 to go down and do another job down in the West Pilbara. And I got almost home and the engine cut out in the one, in the 150 and I landed on the road and I had to walk in, uh, to home. I got in about seven o'clock at night. Everyone was starting to get a little bit worried, but anyway, it was all good. Uh, but what happened was, was the, um, the engineers hadn't done up the you know, spark plug leads and they fell off. <laughs> And of course, the engine stopped, and uh, I landed on the on the road anyway, and and walked in home. And in the meantime, the old rider he'd gone down to Wailu, and the helicopter fell out of the sky, and he he landed right as well. And it turned out that the engineers had had um, put the shells, the wrong shells, in the in the big ends, and he finished up with the. Well, we both had the force landing on the same day, and and. I'm just pleased that I was in my aeroplane and he was in the chopper. But. Yeah. Fair enough. Now that does um does bring up one other yarn that I've been asked uh, to ask you about is that there was a time so you had a, a great and long friendship with Rossi Rader, and I I understand that one day he was tasked with another very important job, not handling your aircraft, but looking after one of your children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tried to go into Headland to um. To pick up some gear and um, and uh, the old rotor he was he was at home and and I had Sally with me and I said to Rossi can you uh, look after Sal while I go and pick this stuff up anyway the old rotor he was a great newspaper reader and he was reading his newspaper in the house and um, about an hour later he rings up and Sally had disappeared he couldn't find her anyway I thought oh geez here we go so I drove back to the to the house and the old rotor he's running around looking for everywhere. Anyway, I walked in the door and um, and uh, she appears from behind his um, sofa. He'd, she'd been in there sleeping and he'd been reading the paper. And he didn't know where she'd got to, so it was it was very amusing. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, speaking of Sal, so yeah, I did an episode with your daughter Sal um, the other day, and she's the one who's been giving me most of the uh, the insider gossip for what to talk about in this episode. I do, I do want to ask where while you in the years that you were flying. Um, cause I'm not quite sure where this fits in in the timeline, but were you also working on the ground? Like, I guess on days that you weren't mustering, you probably would have jumped in the yards at Mount House or were you doing things on the ground oh, as yeah, well? I was, I was working on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah, again, not sure where this fits in, but I understand that you have a particularly impressive scar on your behind. On my leg. Is that on your leg? Okay. Well, that's that not the way Sal tells I love it. Sounds like. So don't make me ask your dad about his bum if it's not on his bum, Sal, if you're listening to this. Okay, so a scar on your leg. Tell me about how that came to came to be. Uh, well, we finished uh, finished mushing this day and um, and one of the fellows that was managing the place, he, he asked me if I'd come down and give me a hand to pick up uh, stragglers in, a, in, the, in one of the local paddocks at the station and I got on the bike and... Um, Went out and, and somehow or other, to this day, I don't know how it happened, but the, a stick got caught up in the front wheel and, and it came back into my leg. It sounded like a gunshot going off when it, when it hit. And it virtually went straight through my leg from the, from the wheel of the bike. A little bit of it was sticking out the back. Anyway, I pulled it off, pulled the stick out. It was all burnt and sharp. And I, um, got back on the bike when we went back to the homestead and then they run me into Headland and the doctor thought that it was clean, I think, and uh, and sewed it all up. And then luckily it went back two days later, and uh, it was nearly gangrenous. And l- luckily there was a um, luckily there was a uh, surgeon from Melbourne took one look at it, me straight on the operating table and cleaned it up. And uh, and but it was a bit of a mess for a couple of months. So you were riding a bike, like a motorbike, motorbike. And, a, and a stick got through the back wheel and came up and. No, it was, was in the front wheel. Oh, in the front? Yeah. Pick, oh. Picked it up and it must have picked it up somehow and then drove it in like, like an arrow, you know? Okay. Because I'm just trying to – so I've just got the – this is the message from Sal. He has a scar on his ass, well, an impression actually on a bull's horn. So she's making it sound like a bull put a horn up your ass when she's telling me what to ask you yeah, about. Yeah, this is – yeah, this is – um. Or is that, that a different was, one? That's a different one. Oh, okay. Because I was like, Sal, <laughs> why are you making me ask your dad about his bum if that's not a real – like <laughs> – Okay, okay, so well, you've got more than one scar then. Well, let's, we better hear the one that Sal's told me to ask you about. Seeing as I've already mentioned your bum about three times in the last five minutes. Yeah, I was about 17, I think, and, um, was mushing with my dad out on the Nullagon River and, um, I got off to throw a bull and, um, he, um, spun around and knocked me off my feet and, and stuck his horn in my bum. <laughs> so, uh, it was in my hip actually, so. Luckily, um, we were 100 mile out or 80 mile out from the homestead and, uh, a fella came driving past and doing some geology work and he picked me up and took me into Edgar and then mum took me to Headland and I finished up getting it fixed up in the Headland hospital. It took about two or three weeks to heal up. It was, yeah, sort of a scar there ever after. Yeah. So you've been through the ringer a bit between like that and then the bike one and then a couple of snake bites and I'm sure there's a plethora of other Incidents that you've put your body through, like you've definitely made the most of it while you've got it, I guess. Uh, so yeah. tested it to the limits. <laughs> tested things to the limits when I'm still alive, so that's one good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you don't you don't know unless you test it. So while you were flying, did you stay? You were staying at home at Mount Edgar. Did you stay there 
for like forever, I suppose. Like you're not at Mount Edgar today. So kind of what happened after? Well, in 79, we, f- we sold Edgar. Um, and mum and dad came to, um, came to Kingaroy to re- retire, bought a place at Kingaroy. And I went flying, flying in the Kimberleys for a few years, uh, just with the aeroplane and flew out of Broome and, and Derby and limestone came up for sale. Lang Coppin rang me up and said, you better come and have a look at this. So I went down, made him an offer and, um, and we bought it or I bought it and went back, moved back there and, and gradually pulled the joint into order through with mustering and a fair bit of contract mustering around. And I think it was there for about three or four years before, um, I went and bought Mallina as a bullet paddock or tried to think it was going to be a bullet paddock. And, uh, the first muscle we done there, we finished up with a TB problem and I tried to run the two together, but because of the, because we weren't allowed to move cattle between the two for the TB problem, it became unviable. So I sold limestone and, and proceeded to get Mallina out of, um, back into the white, get rid of the TB and, uh, I think in 1990 we sold that and moved to um, moved to Queensland. So you had limestone, which is very close to where you grew up at Mount Edgar. Like that's basically a neighbouring property. Uh, it's a very similar country. And Mallon is not all that far away, a couple of hours further west and a little bit north, um, which again is still still like very Pilbara. It's in the Pilbara, so Pilbara country, but a little bit different. And you said you had a TB, so a tuberculosis problem that was quite prevalent, I suppose, in Australia throughout the 80s and the ended up being a big national eradication program. But yep. that kind of threw a spanner in the works and how you wanted the two properties to work together because of one having TB and the other not, you couldn't move the cattle between them and and run it as you wanted. Yeah, well, the idea was to, was with the two places was to to, to have one as a, as a bullock depot because it, it was just the rumours were just starting then about having um, about having live exports and, and thought we might get in on the, on the act early and, just have limestone as a breeder place and then turn all the steers off Malina. And um, it just didn't work out because of the TB problem and it took, I think it took three or four years to to get to eradicate what, what was there. Not that there was much there, but it was enough to not be able to pull the steers off limestone and bring them to Malina or vice versa. We couldn't take the cows. We were going to take cows off Malina to fully stock limestone and, um, and, and we couldn't take the cows back there as well. So it made it... Made it pretty awkward. Now, at this point, you'd spent your entire life in the Pilbara and, and, and the Kimberley, but you'd grown up on a, an expansive pastoral lease uh, or pastoral property. You'd spent your whole life working on stations in in the north, and then at some point you decide, I'm going to swap that, you know, whereas your average property size is hundreds of thousands of hectares, it's just it's a whole different production system to come all the way to the other side of the country and essentially uh, my understanding is that you, you kind of swapped with someone else and you guys did like a literal farm and station swap. How does that come about? It's such a big change. I mean, it's also just kind of you know not heard of to just you know kind of swap properties, but it's it's kind of it really is a big tree change. Yes, it was, I guess, and and I mean, there's a number of reasons why it was done, and one one big one was that my um, parents hadn't seen the two the two kids, and uh, grandparents were very important. I've, I've um, had some fantastic grandparents when I was growing up, and I really wanted them to to experience um, experience them, and um, 
and plus the fact that I thought it was time we had freehold and uh, there's always something interesting on the other side of the fence. So. How did you first come up with the idea or even, and even find this place? You know, you've still got it today and, yeah, how did it all come about? Oh, we'd, we'd come over to visit Mum and Dad at Kingaroy and... Um, and one of my mates who was in the real estate over in the in the West rang up and said, uh, I've got a buyer for Melanie, you want to sell it? And I said, oh, I don't know, not really, but um, there's always a price for something. And uh, so we went and had a look around here with with one of the local real estate fellas and uh, he brought us up to Barline here and um, we had a um, had a bit of a look. I liked it and uh, it progressed from there. It took a couple of years, but and it finally progressed where... Um, we came here and the fellow from from here went over there. So the fellow that had contacted the agent in the West and said, I'm interested in where I want a property out West, and the agent would be like, all right, what about this one? He was the one, so they brought you to his farm. So was there ever a question? No, of- no, that, no the, the, it was just the, the fellow. We, we went and seen a real estate bloke here in um, Mergen and he took us for a drive around Queensland. Oh, okay. And the fellow over there, he... He it finally fell through his sale. Oh, the one that he had. It, okay, and then and then this fellow that was here decided that he might like to move to Malina. So we had talks about that, and um, and finally it happened. So wow. So this so this place was for sale when you were driving around seeing what was in the area. Yeah, and then yeah. you're like, oh, I'm interested. I'm you know I might be interested in buying a property. I'm currently from a place out west, and that guy was like, oh, wanna. Like trade, like yeah, it's just some, so, somehow it happened like that. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just always just thinking like from like a paperwork perspective or you know uh, titles and taxes. Like I'm not even going to get into that, but that just has to be fun. But I mean that is pretty cool though. Like you hear, I'm pretty sure there was even a um. Oh, this sounds so lame. A, a TV show on Channel Seven, if like years ago, and it was where there was like one family on a farm and like the cousins or whatever were in the city, and they actually just swapped. Like that was the the storyline was that, you know, the city ones moved out to the farm and the farmy ones moved into the city or something and they stopped houses and that's kind of like what you've done here but it's just from station to farm. Station to farm. Yeah. And so you – I just – I know that when people often, when I speak to them, even if people aren't born on a station, when they go up north, it's something that gets in your blood and, you know, under your skin that you kind of can't leave it. Like people keep coming back and you just kind of – even if, even if someone's like, say, born in Sydney and they go up and do a gap year and then they come back to their, you know, I'm going to use air quotes here, real life or whatever, there's still always something that pulls people back. So was it really hard to, to leave everything behind and come to a whole, it's a really different environment. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, you still have cattle, but it's, it is really different. Yeah, it is different. Uh, it's sort of, um, it's close to everything here. Like, you know, it was always 100k, 100, 200k, 300k to go to town over there to get to get stuff. Whereas here, you, if something goes wrong, and it's 10k in there to get a nut or a bolt or something. So it's not too bad. But but yeah, and I mean the pill was was a great thing for for my life. I I like going going back there, and of course we go back there to the Kimberley every year with a bull sale, and uh, and it's just like a little um, like it was my holiday for me anyway. The the trip to to Fitzroy, and it takes three weeks. I don't often get down to the pool now, but um, it's always it's always good to go back and and see the people there. I understand that after moving here, you continue to travel back and forth for several years, um, while like still contract mustering. Because <coughs> I guess over here, like 
there's obviously you can aerial muster in Queensland, but this part of Queensland, it's smaller blocks, so probably not a tool that's used. But that yeah, you continue to travel back to WA and do a lot of mustering for quite yeah, a few well, years. Uh, for at least uh, 12, 12 or thirteen years, I'd I'd go back for the season and uh, I'd do three or four places there. They'd they'd work in together, and I'd um, do one one muster in one place, move to the next. Do the muster there, do it for the next, and then they'd clean up. And every two weeks, I'd come home for a week, and then go back for two weeks, and and just do the the three or four places that were working together. So it worked worked very well for us over the over the period of twelve or fourteen years. And so it was sort of like even though you left the Pilbara, you kind of didn't really leave in a sense, because well, at least for the next twelve, thirteen years, you still spent a fair bit of time there. Yeah, well, I would have spent six or eight months there on and off uh, in that time. So, well, two weeks on and one week off was uh, a bit like fly in, fly out. So kept the kettle boiling here and uh, put the kids through school. And, yeah, I'm yeah. just thinking, you know, you can take the man out of the Pilbara or can you, really? <laughs> like, can you? I don't think we even have to get to that second bit about taking the Pilbara out of the man because I don't know if you can actually take the man out of the Pilbara. You're the living example right in front of me. <laughs> Um, you are still quite involved in the, in the Northern WA pastoral industry today as the one of, like, I suppose, the founders of the Fitzroy Crossing Bull Sale, which is the last thing I'm going to talk to you about before I let you get back to, um, getting out and running the farm and, you know, the things you actually have to do rather than sit down and have a, I know it's been a great morning sitting here with me, <laughs> cracking so many smiles, guys. I'm really working hard here. But uh, tell me how the so the Fitzroy Crossing bull sale's only been around for not for not too long, and you you and your son are kind of very instrumental in pulling it all together and running it every year. So what can you tell us? I suppose oh, and often for a lot of people listening that aren't in the Kimberley may never have heard of the Fitzroy Crossing bull sale and understand why it's so different to other bull sales around the country. Yeah, well, we started off. Um, I think it's fourteen years. This is our fourteen sale coming up this year, or might be our fifteenth. I'm not totally sure, but. Um it started off at the 100th anniversary of the PNG Association, the forming of the PNG Association, and um, Harold Seeley, who was um, Farmworks Manager at the stage, rang me up and said, can you, um wasn't very long before, he was only about three months, can you, uh, three or four months, and it wasn't much time to get organised, but he said, can you get some bulls for a bull sale? And I said, well, we'll have a crack at it, and um, and it worked. Uh, we got them there, and... Um, wasn't the crackinest of sales for for three or four years, but um, finally um, it's turned into um, a very good bull sale, the biggest one in WA, and um, and compares with a lot of them around Australia. So, so because Northern WA, so this this sale is really to service the Kimberley, but there are a few Pilbara people that come up as well. I suppose. As a state, WA is so different to Queensland or New South Wales in that, you know, there's a lot less population, there's not as many towns. And then so what people are buying at the sales are herd bulls or, you know, so basically they're looking for breeding breeding bulls to put into their herd to improve their quality. So over here um, in Queensland, there's sales all the time because you've got towns everywhere and people can, somebody puts on a sale and people can bring their, their bulls there and you go there and buy it. In WA, we don't have people breeding those bulls to be used like that. Or we do, but not in the numbers that are, that are needed. So my understanding is that people have to, you know, and the same in the territory, they have to go to Queensland or other places to buy their bulls. And usually they would buy them, they would have to go direct to a vendor. So find 
a farm or a station that is selling bulls and kind of do like a like a private sale. And so what the bull sale is doing is bringing a selection over and also introducing people because, you know, there's hundreds of people that are, are breeding bulls for sale. So it's bringing a selection of animals over, kind of saving a bit of a trip of going over there and looking for bulls. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I only just kind of realised today, embarrassingly enough, that it's, it is kind of like the only sale of its kind that I know of where um, – because, yeah, any other sale that you'd want to go to, say, in Queensland, somebody says, we're going to put on a sale and people can be like, yep, I'm going to sell my cattle there or my bulls there, and they all just bring their bulls and that's it. Whereas this one is like hand – it's like invitational, basically. It's like, it's like um, I suppose, in rodeos. You can have a rodeo where anybody can go and compete and then you've got a rodeo like the Calgary Stampede where you have to be invited to compete. Like not just anyone can turn up. And so uh, I suppose like you and Johnny are sort of the gatekeepers – in the invitational part of this bull sale is that you guys are hand selecting what bulls are going to be brought across and offered. And the the great part about that is, is that you've spent so much time in the Kimberley, you really know the country and the conditions and what sort of animals will do well there. Yeah, well that's that's right. And um and I mean it's not it's not just me and Johnny, it's um Andrew Stewart and Todd Walsh. They they've got a big input into it and they come over every year and we go through the procedure of what the next sale is going to be and what bulls are needed and we use a, about 12 or 13 vendors from over here and it's a it is a bit different because um, there's so much other stuff you've got to do to get all those cattle onto two trucks to get them there and it's a four and a half thousand k journey so there's a lot of lot of things you've got to do to to get get them there in in good order and where we spell them and feed them and all that sort of thing it takes quite a Quite a bit of um, organising, and I guess um, the week that it takes to get there is um, it's it's a bit tolling on them. But the way we do it is is by spelling and 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 feeding them every um, as much as we can, and it, and, it, and, it, and they arrive there in pretty good order. Yeah. So something we were discussing just before we started recording is that. Uh, so you and Johnny and, and some other people are essentially the chaperones of the cattle from from woe to go. Um, so again, like any other place in the country, you have a sale, people can either send their bulls in or they'll bring them in themselves. You know, it's just kind of like a, you know, you go from your farm to the sale. Whereas here they're going across the country. They have to be stopped at certain points to be let off and rested, um, be inspected at the WA border. I'm not sure if there's any other inspection points between here and there, but you know, there's a bit more to it. And, and you're basically there the whole time. Like you're the person that's accountable for that. And, essentially being like the chaperone as a, as a parent at a school dance or on a school camp or something, you are, you know, the guardian of these cattle as they go across, which is pretty cool. Yeah, well, certainly it's probably not much different to carting them up with kids across the country. You've got to break up fights and make sure they're not doing the wrong thing and uh, look after their ills and um, and be on be on top of things before it happens virtually. And uh, if you're on top of it before it happens, there's, there's usually no, uh, no, no problems, though. At least if you are at least cutting these compared to a mob of kids across the country, these ones aren't going to be like, are we there yet? Can we stop and get an ice cream from the servo? Oh, I have to go to the bathroom every five minutes. So well, they certainly don't answer you back, but they can, um, they can be very trying at times if they start fighting and, and carrying on. <laughs> How do you decide when you're 
when you're picking your bulls, um, obviously as the sale goes on, it gets bigger and, and hopefully, you know, the numbers will increase. But as I said, there are so many options of where you could be picking stock from to come across to this sale. And, and it is important that, you know, I, you can't just take any old bull and put it in any old part of the country. Like they different, you know, especially, you know, it's not just the, the environment, um, and the country type, but, uh, what people have already got there and the markets they're aiming for. Like there's so much going into it. How are you deciding? And, and I guess you must be kind of always got one eye open as you're reading the paper and driving around or talking to people about, cause you might come across someone new yourself that might be a good fit for the sale. Well, listen, we're always looking for, uh, for people that may want to, want to come in if, um, if they can sort of work with the, with the process. But I guess the big thing is, is, um, is, is we look after the bottom line as much as we can. And, um, normally the top, the top bulls look after themselves. So we've really got to make sure that, that the bottom line is, is up to a standard that people are going to, um, going to buy. So that's, that's our big criteria and, and whatever information that, um, that, that the people want that buy them, uh, we try and give them as much, much information on that beast as we can. And in saying that, there's, um, it's, 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 it's a big cost. The more information you get, the bigger cost it is. And, uh, and of course, um, station properties have got a, a, a budget that, that's, um, you know, doesn't allow for huge money for bulls. So you've got to be, um, Try and stay within that bracket of um, of not getting too much, um, too many costs on top to to take the the cream away from from the sale. So yeah, so. and and I suppose people, you know, it's you know, on a station compared to on a farm, you, you're needing a significantly greater number of bulls. And that is another question I'd had earlier, which I find fascinating is to me, this is like a risky exercise in the idea of you taking all these animals across and like, well, what if something doesn't get sold? It's not like you're at a retail store and you have your end of financial year sale where it's, hey, like $20 off jumpers or come get your sales stock, whatever. But as you explained to me, um, you know, you guys have worked so hard and I guess, I guess it's evident of the good choices you've made with the, the stock going into the sale that these days there isn't anything that's left unsold. You know, you don't have that as an issue. Whereas I, yeah, that's what I was like. That was my first thought was like, Oh, what if something travels all the way across and it doesn't sell? But that's just not an issue, which is again, really cool that everything goes every year. And well, yeah, so look, it was an issue for a few years. Um, but, um, I think it's mainly because we've looked after that bottom line that, um, that, and people have realized that, that the cattle that are coming over are, are what they want. And, um, and, um, and as you say, there's been no, um, nothing left over, no passed in ones for the last, um, six, seven years anyway. So, which is really good. And, I, you, and you got, we, we are a lot of that to, um, to the boys in Broome, Andrew Stewart and Todd Walsh. They've, they've sort of on top of, um, of what everyone wants over there, uh, as well. So. Yeah, and I think I think it was episode maybe four or five on this podcast. I did a little mini episode with um Walshy, and on our other podcast, the Cattle Station Classroom, I've done an episode with Andrew Stewart explaining about his job as a livestock agent. So if anybody wants to hear from those fellas directly, you can go track down those episodes. 
Don't worry, uh, Jim, they'll also be coming on this podcast at some point when I'm back in Broome. Nobody escapes it. So you've done your turn. They will do theirs. Don't worry. Uh, I was also just thinking that in addition to the, obviously the bull sale is a great thing for the Kimberley and the Pilbara in terms of the community. Um, you know, it brings the community together. It brings this service across. It introduces, um, you know, new bloodlines into the area. It, it makes things easier for people. But again, kind of like how you kept coming back for those 12 or 13 years contract mustering once you left the Pilbara. Now, every year for the last 12 or 13 years, you come back to the Kimberley for this sale every year. So again, you can take the man out of, or maybe, maybe it's just you can take the man out of Western Australia, or can you? Like, <laughs> I think there is something like you keep coming back, like every <laughs> year. So, I think that that's quite a testament. Um, I'll start to wrap up now. I do want to ask you. Um, I have just thought of a new question. Sorry, I haven't prepared you for this one, but. Looking back, like, what is the thing that you're most proud of so far in all the different? I mean, you've done so many different things and contributed to a lot of different different yeah, it was things. Certainly, um, all the years of I, I was mustering was um, was was a great was a great thing for my life, and uh, and I'd like to think that there's a hell of a lot of um, people that are in the industry now that learn a lot of us, and uh, and there certainly is every now and again someone rings up and says, "Oh, it was great working with you." My life's changed because of all this sort of thing. So, I mean, that was great. That's a pretty cool legacy to have. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess, you know, the two kids, Johnny and Sally, stayed with the game and they they love it and that's that's fantastic. So, How do you, as I'm thinking of this question, I can't help but laugh thinking of your, of, you know, the stories you've told about the snake fights and the, uh, the the other accidents. But I do like to ask everybody how they look after themselves. And as I'm saying that, I'm like, does he look after himself? I'm not sure, but you do. You're still here. So what do you do to look after yourself? You know, it can be physically, mentally, spiritually, you know, whatever floats your boat. How, how have you kind of looked after yourself all over all these well, years? Well, um, I'm, I'm only working for, for Johnny now, so he, you know, he keeps me moving. So I've got to, I've got to go to work every day. So. And, um, and he makes me walk and he makes me muster and he makes me buddy drive tractors and, and, um, God knows what else, and uh, and we go to Fitzroy every year, which is uh, which is a great holiday. And every now and again, we go fishing. So, so just I guess balance. Then is that for you? Kind of sounds like you've got a good balance between work so, yeah. and play. Yeah, yeah. I like going to work. It's a great lifestyle, and um, and and we work with great people. So, and what look, more would you want? I don't know. I was trying to think of a good comeback to that, and I haven't got one. <laughs> <laughs> so you've stumped me. There you go. Speechless. Um, to finish up, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? I'm not sure how to answer that. Well, I guess if there's an opportunity there, take it and go and get a job and there's always something arises from that um, and, and arises from that as well. It just goes on and on and on. If you, if you get out there and go to work, you'll find, find more and more opportunities. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au 
where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.